and welcome to this episode of the Sex Plus Health podcast. My name is Sydney Roth, and I am an intern at the American Sexual Health Association. Welcome to part one of our Disability and Sexual Health series. Today's episode will focus on sex education. To help us learn more about this topic, we have a very special guest. Catherine McLaughlin is a certified sexuality educator and is the founder, CEO, and lead trainer for Elevatus Training. She has been a sexuality educator and trainer for over 25 years. She is a national expert on sexuality and intellectual and developmental disabilities. She trains professionals, parents, and individuals to become sexual self-advocates and peer sexuality educators. So welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Sydney. Um, I think I will jump right into the questions. Um, Sounds great. We can start with the first one, which is a very broad question. I think I'm going to ask it to all of the guests in this series. Um, what are some myths about sex and disability that you think are important to discuss? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the, there's lots of stereotypes about people with disabilities, including that they're not sexual beings, they're not interested in this topic at all, um, that they're oversexed, you know, that they can't control themselves, that they're childlike and need protection from sexuality and relationships. Um, And then sometimes things like they can't consent to sexual relationships, they, they don't understand, those kinds of all kinds of negative stereotypes about people with disabilities. Yeah, I agree about the infantilization of people with disabilities is a is a really um, prominent problem that Mm -hmm. I I've seen in the media and when doing research for this. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Are there any of those stereotypes and myths that you find to be the most like harmful or the one that's most needed to be addressed? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to pick just one. They all, you know, have a negative impact, but I think what they all do is give people this idea that uh, sexuality education, relationship education is not needed for this population. So whether they think of them as children or not sexual or anything, um, all of those lead to people just not providing access to sexuality education. And uh, ignorance is not bliss. Uh, and really, you know, knowledge is power. And so if people believe these myths and stereotypes and then withhold information that's really needed, it puts people more at risk. Yes. And as I'm sure you know, but I'm assuming most people listening do not know, um, that the rates of sexual abuse of people with disabilities are significantly higher than those without disabilities. What do you think needs to be done to address this crisis? Yeah, well, uh, like you said, uh, some there's different statistics, but um, yeah. sort of the general one is seven times more likely to be sexually abused. And so um, those rates are, are, are terrible. And so how do we you know, reduce those rates. And really, to me, it's sexuality education. Mm-hmm. It's treating people with disabilities as adults, um, mm-hmm. the age they are. Um, 
teaching non-compliance skills too, to not feel like you have to say yes to everything that someone with authority um, asks you to do. So there's lots of areas and really that bodily autonomy and life autonomy that this is my body and I get to decide what's right for me. This is my life. Uh, I get to decide what's right for me. This is my time. I get to decide how I want to spend my time. You know, the more people have those skills as well as education about healthy relationships and what is abuse, um, we'll see those rates come down. Um, and I think the other thing is that there's also higher rates of loneliness. So even that, we could have some of those rates come down by teaching people social norms and skills for being in relationships. Um, also things like people lose their job because they don't understand that the coworker relationship and um, hug someone that they just met or you know, just not understanding the social norms and how we interact in relationships. So then you lose your job. So you're lonely, you've lost your job. Maybe you have a history of abuse. I mean, it just seems to me, it's so much of a, a no brainer. Like, of course we would teach people about these topics. Look at what happens when we're not doing it. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think, um, especially the part about teaching about healthy relationships so that if they have been or have experienced an unhealthy relationship or interaction they know that that's not normal like that's not what they should expect from other people mm -hmm. um and another thing i was thinking about is the reporting of these incidents like um maybe not being taken seriously or being told like oh that's not what didn't happen the way you think it did or just ignoring the problem altogether from a like people of authority perspective. Mm -hmm. um, right. They, they often lack credibility, you know, yeah, they don't believe, they're not believed um, around abuse or they're not believed sometimes around sexual orientation or their gender identity. So I think that's another piece is having people that believe people with disabilities and support them in whatever they might need in their sexual development. Yeah, I do agree that I think there's this like you said um, earlier, the um, treating people with disabilities like children, like the infantilization and um, also thinking that you know best about somebody else's mm -hmm. personal experiences, their body, everything. Thinking that somebody can just tell somebody what they should and should not do or what they can and cannot do or invalidating their own experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another thing I was thinking about when I was uh, writing this question is just the basics of learning anatomy, knowing the right words for certain parts of your body so that you can, it can help like articulate like nobody should touch you in this place without your consent and making it very clear. Like, mm -hmm. I think I remember seeing, and this does go with children, um, about parents teaching their kids from a young age, the anatomical body parts so that you don't say, oh, somebody touched me in my private parts, but not really know what they're saying. Like, 
So that yeah, you, does that make sense? It it absolutely makes sense, and it really it connects this idea of um, language, having the language mm -hmm. to report. You know, you said people aren't believed, but but also people with disabilities are often viewed as the perfect victim. You know, they don't have the language, they don't have the education. Um, and so having that language, I think it makes you seem less vulnerable. You seem educated, which yeah. um, is not the perfect victim. Um, and so having that language, and then I've heard many stories about people who are reporting something and they have, they don't have the medical terms for their sexual parts. So they say, um, he keeps touching my purse. So they keep moving her bag to different places. And three weeks later, they find out that purse is a is her slang term for her vulva. So yeah, yeah I mean, that could have been fixed much earlier had people had have the language to be able to articulate what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about was that the language is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and however that language is, whether it's by writing or um, speaking or any other way of communicating, if you if you know the right words, right. You, it can clarify things. Mm -hmm. And it also just kind of normalizes it yeah. too, you know, uh, you know, just like it's just a body part. And, um, we don't really have to have funny names for ears and nose. <laughs> um, so why do we have funny names for these parts? And yes, yeah, so I think it, it normalizes and helps protect people. Yeah. Um, so you're in the sexuality education um, space. So in the sexual reproductive health space, there's always all this talk about comprehensive sexuality education. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who is a sexuality educator, what are your thoughts on the current state of affairs? <laughs> For people with disabilities? For people with disabilities, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah so it, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at some of the the information around which states in this country require uh, sexuality education to be inclusive of people with disabilities, there are only five states currently that require that sexuality education in schools also include students with disabilities. So it, it would be great if every state in the country had some sort of requirement that not only do people without disabilities receive sexuality education, but also people with disabilities. So that seems to be where people are trying to, to work the most is how do we get more, more of the states to say, yes, this is a population that needs it, maybe more than other people in some ways. Um, and let's do it. Let's teach uh, about healthy relationships and give them the, the knowledge so they can be safe and happy. So I think that's part of it is looking at some policies. Um, but there are a lot of, I do a lot of training of uh, either professionals in, in an agency, like a developmental disability agency or a school, and they want to teach this. They know of its importance. And so we've had about 1,200 people go through our three-day training. So there's more and more people that know how to teach this to this population. Um, and so I think the more people are comfortable, the more we can share this knowledge and reduce some of those harmful statistics too. And also to know 
like what does someone with a physical disability need around sexuality education? Mm -hmm. What does someone with an intellectual disability? Um, because sometimes people are part of the mainstream health class, but that's not enough. They have mm -hmm. other needs around their sexual development as well. So not just, oh, okay, someone with a disability can be in the mainstream health class, that's great, mm -hmm. but how do we um, make sure that their learning needs are met and that the information is cognitively accessible um, and just help support their, their growth and development? Yeah, I, I think, think I that's remember. a piece. Um, the other thing that I like to say is no matter if it's two 18 year olds, whether they have a disability or not, they need the same information. We might teach it a little bit differently based on somebody's cognitive abilities and limitations, but really the topics are generally the same, no matter what. And to base, um, you know, really think about the biological age. So what does every 12 year old need to know about this. So we might teach it differently, but not necessarily change the topics themselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to have, like maybe it's taught differently, but you're covering all the same topics, you're covering all the same information. It just might need to be taught differently or presented differently. And I think I do remember from when I had sex education in high school, um, mm -hmm that it didn't have to be medically accurate. Mm. Um, and I think that's especially important, um, just having it medically accurate and then also represent representative mm -hmm. of everyone like in the class, whether they have a disability, whether they're queer, doesn't like so that everybody is like represented in their sex education because I think that's very much lacking in just sex education in general, and especially since, um, as far as I know that, yeah, like you said, I can't believe only five states mm -hmm. require sex education to be like inclusive of students with disabilities. That is, I mean, I know it's bad overall in the US, but that's, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And by a lot, I mean a few. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people talk about like somebody who's gay or lesbian mm -hmm. going through school and going to sexuality education classes and feeling invisible mm -hmm. as if they don't matter. And I think that's true. Like what you're saying that everyone wants to feel visible and part of it. And, and so how do we make sexuality education inclusive? How do we make sure that there's the intersections between disability and race or disability and LGBTQ? And so, um, you know, inclusive, but also those connections there mm -hmm. as well. And like you said, medically accurate too. Um, so how can people listening, how should we um, go about advocating um, for the increase in availability of sex education for people with disabilities? Like, what can just the average listener do? Yeah, I mean, I think first just knowing that everyone is a sexual being, mm -hmm. no matter whether they have a disability or not. And that doesn't mean that a person's having sex. It means they have a sexuality. Mm -hmm. And we all need information about our sexuality and 
um, and learn the skills needed to be in relationships. So everyone needs that, including people with disabilities. I think also spending time with people with disabilities and asking them why do they want and need to learn about mm -hmm. sexuality education because they want to learn about it. Um, many of them show up for my classes. Um, so what's important to them? What are the topics that they want to learn about? So again, that's giving them that autonomy of making decisions about how they spend their time and um, what's important to you and why do you want this information? And most of the time they say, so we can have healthy relationships, so we can be safe, so we're not lonely. Um, things that all of us want in our lives too. And then I think the other thing is to really think about age again and treat people the age that they are, um, but also um, having, one of the terms we use is self-advocate. So that's someone with an intellectual developmental disability. Have self-advocates learn how to teach sexuality education. So I have a bunch of programs um, where the self-advocates are the teachers as well, because I think when, well, not only are, do we want to be represented in a class, but if you're if the teacher has a disability as well, people feel like the there are lots of possibilities in their lives and they're not just the problem. They can be part of the solution. They can help other people. And um, so I think that's how we want to get people with disabilities more engaged in advocating um, either for their own personal lives as a sexual self-advocate um, or just um, advocating for more sexuality education in the school or at your local agency. Um, or becoming a sexuality educator yourself. I think that doing something without the input of the community you're affecting or you're trying to help um, can often be seen as like, I think paternalistic is the right word. Mm -hmm. um, where you just, or where you go in and like a savior complex. Um, right. So I think especially with certain groups like people with disabilities, um, somebody without a disability or without knowledge of um, disabilities will go in and like not actually give them the correct information um, or think that they know better than the people who actually experience it. I think that's really important to have people who have actually experienced things or are part of a certain community, be the ones that lead the education um, or are participating in the development of the education mm -hmm. um, so that it it doesn't come across as like a savior complex or other people coming in telling them that they know better than them about their own personal experiences, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I know when I first started working with mm -hmm. Green Mountain Self-Advocates many years ago, I was going to write a curriculum because there weren't a lot of materials. So I yeah. went to them and, and they said, hold on, nothing about us without us. Yes, that's um, the, so, that, mm -hmm. yeah. And so even myself, uh, you know, I, I wasn't feeling like a savior, I, but yeah you know, it was a good awareness for me too. And they said, we want to help create this curriculum. Oh yeah. And we also want to be one of the teachers of the curriculum as well. And so it was a, it was a aha moment for me where I started, when I went, of course, of course you want to be involved 
And I think a really good example of when we wrote the curriculum is I use the word sexual behavior, right? That's a pretty common way to talk about sexual acts and things. Uh, and they said, we hate the word behavior because we're always told that our behavior is inappropriate. We just hate the word behavior. So we changed it to sexual acts. Um, so yeah, the more you have someone that had that lived experience influence the, the final product or the curriculum, then it, it speaks to people more. You know, I could have used behavior and everyone was going, ugh, I hate that word and not paying attention. But um, sexual acts uh, felt better to them. So yeah, knowing what, what, what will work in the community rather than thinking I know everything. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that they were like, we really don't want the word behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and that they were able to, and that you were there to listen to what they were saying and change it so that you weren't saying behavior, you were saying acts. I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, I think it's a, a powerful example of, yes, you know, talking to the people you're, you're trying to reach and having them lead versus me leading. Um, what are the top, this is also probably uh, a big question. Um, what are some things you wish people with disabilities knew about sexual health or sex education? Yeah, um, I wish that people with disabilities knew that everyone is a sexual being and they have the right uh, to know about this topic and they have the right to decide whether they want to be in a sexual relationship or not. Um, I think some of those sexual rights would be really important um, for people to know that they do have the right to say yes or say no. Um, they get to decide. So I think a lot of that autonomy, decision-making um, and support that they might need to carry out a decision. Uh, I wish they knew that they, they, they were sexual beings and that they have the right to advocate for themselves for relationships and within relationships as well. And, you know, there's so many topics that are important mm -hmm. for all of us. It's not like just people with disabilities need this. I mean, I have to remind myself all the time, like you have the right to say no when someone requests something of you. And, you know, we're all kind of brought up to always say yes and be pleasing, um, especially if as a female, um, mm -hmm. So I think it's something that we all struggle with and it's not just a disability issue, um, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, being your own, your own boss and your own advocate are really important skills for everyone to have. Yes, I really like how you said that. Um, it doesn't, it's not just important to people with disabilities, the ability to say no and the ability to say yes. Um, I think both of those are very important to be able to make that decision for yourself and not have somebody else make that decision. Right. And like you were saying, I know best, like, oh, you shouldn't do that because I know best. And that's just not true. We know ourselves much better than others know us. And yeah. And if we'd ever have the opportunity to make those decisions, then we're faced with something like a sexual decision. And why would we be able to 
say no then if we've never been able to say no to something else. So, um, yeah, so there's ways that we can just give people more power in their lives and more choice in their lives that will help with their sexual relationships later in their lives. Well, I think just this idea of sexual self-advocacy um, is just an interesting thing to think about. And what does that mean to be a sexual self-advocate or a strong sexual self-advocate? And some of the things that I focus on are uh, beliefs that people have. So do you believe that you have the right to make your own decisions? Do you believe it's okay to talk about this topic? Do you believe that you get to um, decide what's right for you? You know, that we really have to start with those beliefs because if I give you information and you don't believe it's your choice, that doesn't, it's not really gonna help you. So what are the beliefs that a strong sexual self-advocate has? What are, what's the knowledge that's needed and what are the skills? So that's where I focus a lot of my work is, okay, let's look at these beliefs because those could be a barrier too. Uh, I shouldn't ask this question. I'm not supposed to do this. This isn't for me. So we have to change those beliefs um, first before before anything. Like, yeah, I get to decide what's right for me in my life. So we really have to start there. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting about sexual self-advocates. I don't think prior to uh, looking at your website and uh, all of that, that I even heard of that term before. So I'm assuming that most people listening probably have never heard of that term before as well. Yeah. And I think sometimes you might hear it as agency, right? mm -hmm. like sexual agency. Um, but uh, yeah, I, that's probably more general population. Yes. Maybe you've heard of that, but um, yeah. But how about, you know, yeah, agency or self-advocacy, all really good skills for everyone. And especially people with disabilities because people often don't listen, like we were saying before. So how do you speak up and make sure people are listening? Yeah, I would say maybe uh, since people with disabilities sometimes or often aren't given their own, like you said, agency to make their own decisions or even just make decisions or have their voice listened to. So you first have to have that, they have to know that they can do that. And then you have to have them know that they can make those decisions sexually as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, start now. <laughs> uh, and sort of, you know, you were talking about young children before mm -hmm. and, you know, this whole idea of you don't have to hug Aunt Betty unless you want <laughs> to kind of a thing. But I think that's a good one for for all of us and in particular adults with disabilities too, just that you get to decide. And if you're not comfortable hugging Aunt Betty or letting her pinch your cheeks or whatever, you could say, I don't like that. Let's high five. Um, and it can really start uh, as a young child or maybe it's something needed later in life too. And some of the work I'm doing with people with disabilities is, um, around speaking up to me as the instructor and saying, no, I, I wanna put my name tag here or here. Don't tell, I know what's right for me. And it's really, it's about a name tag, but it's really about more than that. It's about 
you get to decide and, and, and it's okay to speak up as well. Yeah, that's really important, being able to speak up and be listened to. Yes, right. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle for it all to work. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So people can reach out to me at Elevatus Training, E-L-E-V-A-T-U-S Training. Um, and we have lots of trainings and uh, teaching tools We also have a resource page that has lots of great articles and things you can download and wonderful websites. Um, If you just want to start thinking about how am I going to address this topic with the people I work with, with my own child, for myself. Um, So please reach out to us if you need anything, because we're really here to support all people in thinking about how how can I um, advocate for more sexuality education for people with disabilities. Thank you.